And I'm talking in this series, and we're finishing this series off tonight. What does it take for a church to feel like home? What does it take for a church to make that transition in our hearts, in our heads, where it's no longer something that we have to do, but it's something that we want to do? And we've answered this with two answers so far. We're going to give you a third. The first answer was so that we might where we can be broken and belong. Where we can belong while we are broken. And then, and then last week, we talked about this, that, that we can belong while we come to believe. Like faith is a journey, and we grow in faith. And, and not everybody in this room has the same level of faith as everybody else. And we want to create a place where people far from Jesus can sit with people very near to Jesus and totally love with Jesus and explore Jesus and Christianity and be um, receiving the spoken word of God in such a way that I believe it will generate faith in their hearts. And so that we create a place where people can get on the train, so to speak, and head towards believing. That was last week. I gave you the answer last week at the end of the message. This week, good news, I'm giving you the answer right up front. Answer number three, how, what does it take for a church to feel like home? Write it down in your notes. When I can belong, while I become what God wants me to be. Listen to me very carefully. The Christian movement is a movement of becoming. Somebody say becoming. That who you are, I got good news for you. God loves you. And let me just qualify this. God loves you the way that you are. He, he loved you as a sinner. He loved you when you were rebellious. He loved you before you got here. He loved you when you were in your mother's womb. And guess what? Theologically, the Bible tells us that he loved you even before you got in your mother's womb. He loved you from the foundations of the world. That's the good news. Bad news is he refuses to leave you the way that you are. You are in his program to become somebody totally different than who you are right now. Now, some of you, that might be good news because you don't like who you are right now. Yay! <laughs> and some of you like who you are right now, and you don't think that there's any room where, where, where God needs to really tweak you and change you and, and move you and discomfort you and, and adjust you. And, 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 and I, I just, I gotta say, I feel badly for those people because life is going to be very difficult when you forget that the Christian movement is about becoming, changing, growing, transforming daily into what God wants you to be. And, and if you ever forget that, it becomes very difficult to become a Christian or to be a Christian. So we've got to create a place where people can belong while they become. I want to read you some scriptures. John chapter 1 verse 12. Before we get to Titus. John chapter 1 verse 12. To all who did receive him, that's Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to, what's the word? Become children of God. 
Matthew 4, 19. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will, say the next two words, make you fishers of men. I will make you something other than what you are. 2 Corinthians 13, 11 from the New King James Version. Finally, brethren, farewell, become complete. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Following Christ is about becoming. It is never, ever, ever about staying. It's about change. Changing to what God wants you to be. Titus chapter 2. Go there now. I'm going to give you some background information about this wonderful book. And then we'll look at what's, what it's been, what's, what's being said in a few verses. Uh, Titus is a letter, it's a personal correspondence between a guy named Paul. He's the Apostle Paul. He took the gospel to all the nations in his lifetime. He traveled three missionary journeys in the book of Acts, brought the gospel to every major metropolitan area in the world at the time. This man was radical for Jesus. And then he had some disciples. And he had disciples because we also have to create and raise up people who will come after us to do the work of the ministry. I'm so glad that Steve was our MC today because he's a youth pastor here. He's our youth pastor, and he is raising up the disciples to carry on the movement of Jesus after we're dead. Amen, someone. Amen. The youth are important. We love the youth. Elevate 7 p.m. There's the uh, promo for you there, Steve. Uh, Wednesday nights. Um, so... We have to raise up disciples. Paul had two prominent disciples. He had many, but he had two that actually, we actually have letters from Paul to these two disciples in our Bibles. The first one was named Timothy. And I'm sure he was a mighty man of God because everybody named Timothy is a mighty man of God. <laughs> and the second one was named Titus. Titus is his name. So the book of Titus is a letter from the Apostle Paul to his disciple named Titus. Now, who is Titus? Not only was he a disciple of the Apostle Paul, but he was actually a pastor. And he was a church planter. And Titus was a church planter in a city or island called Crete. Any, any Greek people in the house tonight? Any Greek people, Greek and proud? One. Okay. Um, Crete is an island right off the coast of Greece, still an island off the coast of Greece. Back then, it was an island off the coast of Greece. And there was a church on the island of Crete where Paul the Apostle left this guy named Titus, his disciple, to establish that church and to organize that church. And Titus and Timothy, by the way, both had some hard times being pastors because these letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, are known as the pastoral epistles, or another word would be the pastoral letters, okay? That the pastors of the first century needed some help, needed some guidance on how to get this Christianity, this burgeoning movement off the ground, moving in the right direction. You know, it's, it's a brand new movement taking the world by storm, thousands and thousands and millions of, of, of converts coming into the faith. How are we going to organize it? How are we going to structure it? How are we going to continue to move with, with, with effectiveness for the glory of Jesus? And so the pastoral epistles or the pastoral letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, are in our Bibles to this day so that pastors like me can get some help on how to pastor properly. How many know pastors need some help? Wow, I'm, I don't know if I should be offended. 
I was like halfway through that question, I'm like, why am I asking this question? I don't even know if I want them to answer this honestly. But the truth is that pastors do need some help. And so the book of Titus is a letter from Paul to a pastor named Titus on the island of Crete. That's Titus. That's the book of Titus. Let's talk about Crete. Crete was a bad place. Uh, Crete was, in the first century, one of the most hedonistic, worldly, secular, anti-human places in the world. Uh, Crete, let me say it like this, Crete was not where you took the kids on vacation. Crete was not Orlando. Crete was not Disney World. Crete was more like Amsterdam. Only instead of selling pot on the streets, they were selling crack cocaine. Like you could walk into Rite Aid and buy crack in Crete in the first century. It was filled with pirates. It's an island. <laughs> so there was a lot of piracy going on through, uh, for five centuries before the Apostle Paul got there. And right there in the middle of this hedonistic, worldly bad area is a church with a young pastor named Titus. And this, this, is, this is kind of to give you some context. We know that the, the city of Crete was pretty bad because, because um, Titus is there to raise up elders to establish a church. Verse 5 of the, of the first chapter, here's what it says, Titus 1.5. Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Churches need order. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. By the way, church leadership, big church leadership point here. Notice that Paul instructs a pastor to appoint elders. A pastor biblically is called to appoint elders. Some churches vote them in, vote them out. Some churches political means get everybody politically charged up to get their guy in place as elder. Let me tell you something. I, I, I can respect churches that do that, but it is not the biblical model. The biblical model is that a man of God pastors the church and then he raises up other men of God to help shepherd that church and pastor that church and lead that church spiritually. So Paul says to Titus, I want you to appoint elders in every town to bring order and structure to the church of Jesus Christ. And Crete was a tough place to pastor. And we know it's a tough place to pastor because here's what Paul the Apostle writes to Titus seven verses later in Titus chapter 1. Look with me in Titus chapter 1 verse 12. We're going to get to 2 in just a moment. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, has said about Cretans, listen to what he says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, Lazy gluttons. How would you like to be from Crete? It's like, imagine somebody writing a song about America saying, Americans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Right? That's what they write probably over in the Al-Qaeda camps over there in Afghanistan. But we would never say that about ourselves. Am I right? But they had a reputation. They weren't just, and listen, they weren't just sinners. They were double adjective sinners. Always lying. Evil beasts. Lazy gluttons. And you would think that Paul the Apostle would temper this sentiment. 
and say, well, listen, we gotta be Christian about this. We gotta be godly. Jesus doesn't like us to call people names. So, so listen, let's just say that we believe in them, that they're good people at heart, that all we need to do is just give them some self-improvement and they'll be better. Trust me, Titus, it's okay. No, the apostle Paul does not say that. Look at the very next verse. This testimony is true. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I just crack up at that verse because Paul is like, yeah, Cretans stink. <laughs> Cretans are a bunch of creeps. In fact, does anybody hear that term, cretin? You're a cretin? You ever heard that term? It's in Monsters, Inc., which I've watched so many times because I have three kids. And, and cretin, I wonder if that comes from this, but there is actually a word that comes from ancient Greece that was named for Cretans or Cretans. The verb to Cretize was an ancient Greek word that was aimed at saying about someone that when you Cretize them, it was to make them a liar, a beast, or a glutton. Could you imagine that for America? Oh, he's Americanized. What does that mean? He's a jerk. Right? Like when I, go, when I go away and when I go to the South, especially this thing happens a lot to me, whenever somebody finds out that I'm from New England, I always get this response. And you probably do too. Oh, you're a New Englander. <laughs> Anybody ever get that response? If you go to the Midwest, you get that response. If you go to the West Coast, you get that response. If you go to Florida, you get that response. And especially if you go to the Bible Belt, you get that response. What do they mean by saying, oh, you're a New Englander? They mean to say, oh, you're rude and inconsiderate. So when I see you in the hallway, you're not going to say hello, right? Is that how it's going to work? With it? I know you're a New Englander, right? And how many of us New Englanders are like, yeah, that's right. We're rude and inconsiderate. That's right. You, know, you got to work your way into getting our hellos in the hallway. Amen, somebody. That's New England. We like it that way. Okay, but if Paul the Apostle was writing to me today, he would say, hey, Tim, you know New Englanders, they're kind of rude. <laughs> they're kind of inconsiderate. And so you got to look at it that way, and you got to understand that it's tough to be a pastor in this area. And, and, and in Crete, it was tough to the 10th degree. It's tough. People in Crete were creeps. By the way, did you... Um, did you notice that this book is in the Bible to remind us of this very important thing? That this movement, this movement that we are a part of is for creeps. It's for bad people. Do you understand that Christianity is not for middle to upper class Americans who just want to feel better about their lives and when they die go to heaven? This movement is for people who really, really, really stink, who are terrible, who have the reputation of always being liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and the worse the sinner, the better it is for us because we get to see the power of Jesus at work changing the hardest hearts imaginable. That's what this movement is about. This movement is for creeps. Somebody say it's for creeps. Am I giving you the creeps? Because it's true. It's for creeps. By the way, did you hear the story about St. Peter at the, at the pearly gates? Just a side item now. At the pearly gates, and the line was really backed up, and he was having a bad day, so he decided to get through the line quickly by, by letting people in based on how bad their day was. Anybody hear this? There's three guys in line all at the same time. 
And he comes to the first guy. He says, tell me your story. How bad was your day? He goes, I had a horrible day. He said, my wife has been cheating on me for a very long time. So I come home early today to catch them in the act. And I bust through the door and I don't see anybody. So I search the whole apartment, but I can't find them. Then I ran out onto the porch and I look below me and I see this guy hanging from my porch with his fingers. So I go and I get a hammer and I go and I knock that sucker's fingers off the porch and he falls 15 stories down out of my apartment complex on the ground and he doesn't die. So I go and I get my refrigerator and I push it over the porch to kill the guy. But while I lift it over the porch and drop it, I had a coronary and here I am. So St. Peter says, that's pretty bad. He says to the next guy, what's your story? He goes, I was running on the treadmill on the 16th floor of my apartment complex. And I tripped and fell over the edge of my porch. But because I'm an athlete, I was able to catch onto the lower level porch. And I was hanging there when this nutcase comes out with a hammer and starts hammering my fingers. And I let go and I fell. But because I'm an athlete, I was able to survive the fall. When I'm dusting myself off, I look up and I notice that the jerk dropped a refrigerator on my head. And that's what brought me here today. And St. Peter turned to the third guy and he says, you got to beat that. What's your story? Third guy says, you're not going to believe this, but picture this. I'm naked hiding in a refrigerator. <laughs> Do you know how long I've been waiting to share that joke? <clears throat> this movement is for people who are creeps. All right, it doesn't even really fit, but it had to get said because it was that good. Now, I got a question for you. How does this movement make creeps not creeps? How does this happen? Let's think about it. Because it wasn't so long ago that many of you were very, very creep-oriented people. You hung with creeps. You were a creep. Maybe you are still half creep. <laughs> and it wasn't that long ago that you were terrible. You were horrible. And nobody thought that Jesus could save you. How does this movement, how does this faith, Take people who are so bad and turn them around so powerfully. One word. Are you ready for the word? Here it is. Grace. Grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is what changes the sinner's heart. This is really an audacious movement that we are part of, friends. I don't know if you realize this. It's audacious. We expect and fully believe that teaching from a book that is 2,000 years old to a group of people will have such a profound effect on their lives that they will be totally new, changed, transformed individuals. It's an audacious movement. And this movement doesn't just change us. It changes prostitutes. It changes drug addicts. It changes users and abusers. It changes divorcees. It changes the homosexuals. It changes the liars and the gluttons and the, and the freaks and the people nobody wants to be around. We believe that the power of the gospel is that strong that nobody is outside of the reach of Jesus Christ and his grace. Grace, friend, it's grace that 
changes us. And we need, if we're gonna be, if we're gonna be a church that believes in the power of grace, then we need to understand it. So Titus chapter two, that's my introduction. (laughs) And I got 12 minutes left. You guys are in trouble, praise (laughs) the Lord. Verse verse 11 of Titus chapter two, ready? Here's what he says, Paul the apostle, to this pastor in Crete. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. If you have your Bibles open, you can just circle that whole passage that we just read. That is the Bible in a nutshell. It's amazing, these four verses in Titus chapter 2. Let's pray. Father, speak to our hearts and help our minds to conceive of how amazing is your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. If we're gonna be a church where people can belong while they become, if you're taking notes, write this down, we need a clear vision of grace. A clear vision of grace. Notice that Paul says, for the grace of God has what? Say it after me, has appeared. We need to see grace. It has been said that whenever you see a turtle sitting on top of a fence post, you know that that turtle did not get there by itself. It had some help. When you see a turtle on a fence post, you know somebody lifted it up and placed it there. I want to say something. Whenever you see somebody on a stage preaching to you the gospel, I want you to see turtle on a fence post. Because that person did not get there by themselves. They did not strain, they did not crawl, they did not pray harder than you, they did not work harder than you. I want you to hear me, it's grace. When you see somebody singing like a nightingale and they are filled with the Spirit and you just feel God all over you when they sing, I don't want you to picture it as if they got there on their own merit. I want you to see turtle on a fence post. Somebody lifted them up and placed them where they could not get on their own. And when you see somebody sitting next to you at Waters Church and it doesn't look like they belong there, don't look around. I want you to see turtle on a fence post. In the end, the grace of God means that we are all just turtles sitting on the fence post. Everybody quickly make a turtle sound. Exactly, there's no sound. (laughs) Number one thing you need to know about a clear vision of grace is this, listen, write it down in your notes. A clear vision of grace understands that grace is available for anyone. Available for anyone. Paul says grace has appeared, bringing salvation for, say the next word, all, A-L-L, the stain lifter. Remember those commercials? 
gosh, I can't believe nobody remembers that commercial. ALL, the stain lifter, right? If you're under 30, you don't remember. But nonetheless, Jesus is the stain lifter for everybody and anybody. Now, it's so important that we understand this. Because some of us look around in our lives and we say they don't deserve grace. That's what makes it grace. The moment that you limit it, the moment that you delineate, the moment that you draw a line, the moment that you say this far and no further, it's no longer grace. The moment that you say that that person is beyond, you have just annihilated grace. Every single person, no matter what they've done, no matter what they've thought, no matter how they've acted, no matter where they came from, listen to me. God's grace is amazing enough to change them to reach them, to forgive them. And we need to be a church that truly believes that with all of our hearts, that looks at the people who don't look like us. I don't know about you, but I don't want to go to a church where everybody looks like me, smells like me, thinks like me, and sins like me. I want to go to a church where people sin differently than me. Because if we are all me, this would not be a good place to be. Trust me. (laughs) And if we are all any of you, same deal. This grace that God has offered is for all people. That classic word in that wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. That's our second point under this heading. A clear vision of grace understands that grace is necessary for everyone. Now, these are two poles that you've got to understand about grace. Available to anyone, which means nobody's beyond the grace of God, okay? Necessary for everyone, which means I don't care how many Sunday school classes you attended. I don't care how many mission trips you went on. I don't care how long you've been in the faith. I don't care if you have the entire book of John memorized. You still need grace. Necessary for everyone. This is hard to preach in suburban America. Hard to preach in suburban America because many suburban Americanites believe that Christianity is just the additive to our lives. That our kids are pretty good. We know we don't have that many problems. Our bills are paid. We got a good job. Everything looks pretty steady. My wife drives an SUV. I drive a nice car. We have a, we have a cat. We have a dog. We have a, a little house for the dog. Nothing for the cat. But we, we're good people. <laughs> We're good people. And so, yeah, I need the kids to believe in something. Yeah, we should probably go to church and get involved somewhere. We need to be service-oriented. We should do something for the community. Listen, that's not what the gospel teaches us. That this is not the frosting on the cake of your American dream. This is the foundation of everything that you are. And you need to understand it. Unless you understand it, you will totally miss it. That you, you can never be good enough for God. Never. And neither can I. And no matter how much I pray, and no matter how good I become, and no matter how many sins I think finally I have gotten rid of in my life, I still need God's grace. It's it's necessary for everyone. 
Yeah, Tim Keller, I always quote this guy. You're going to get sick of hearing from this guy, but I love his messages. I love, his, I love the way he presents it. Here's what he says. He writes this. You can avoid Jesus Christ as Savior as much by being good as by being bad. Think about that. I'm a good person. Not good enough. I, I've never stolen. I never cheated. I never lied. I never cheated on my wife. I never cheated on my taxes. And I never killed anybody. Okay, okay, okay. First off, the Bible has more than six commandments. And secondly, Jesus said, the heart is the issue. Even if you never actually cheated on your wife, if you've looked lustfully with your eyes at another woman, you have already committed adultery with her in your heart. The issue is not what you do physically before it's what you have done internally. And your heart is wretched and broken and stained with sin from conception. And everybody needs God's grace. Oh, if we could be a church that could just truly, 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 truly believe this. And it is my job, it is my job to remind you, no matter how good you think you have gotten, no matter what level you think you've attained to, elder, pastor, deacon, whatever, that at the end of the day, all you really are is somebody who rebelled against God and in his amazing, infinite grace, he reached out, took you, turned you around, and brought you to himself. Oh, I love this. I love that about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It levels the playing field for everybody. In fact, Titus has one of the most clearest presentations of the gospel. In chapter 3, verse 5, here's what it says. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, not because we were good people, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And when a church catches this when you truly live a life that is based on grace you have a lot more patience with people who don't get it why is it that we have churches named after grace and they have zero grace why do we sing amazing grace and we lose what it really means? Not for them out there. You see, here, here's the thing. And some of you are this at this point, and I've been there too. You falsely think that, that grace opened the door and then you got in and then you left grace behind. That's not how it works. Grace, yes, opens the door. You walk through the door. Jesus welcomes you with open arms as you come into the house of faith. But guess what? Grace keeps you in the house. And you never get to the point where you don't need grace. Which brings me to point number two. We need a clear vision, but number two, we need to learn from grace. We need to learn from grace. Here's what Paul says. Let me just read it again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Verse 12, the very first word of verse 12. Say it with me. Training. Say it with me. Training. The grace of God has appeared to train us. Grace is God's training agent. You might want to write this down. There's a big difference between real grace and false grace. Let me tell you what false grace is. False grace says... You're perfect just the way you are. 
And, 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 and here's another thing that false grace says. God will forgive you, so go ahead and do it. False grace. False grace says, well, I guess I just have to accept this about me. I'm always going to be this kind of person. I'm always going to struggle with this temptation, so I might as well just go for it. That's false grace. That's not real grace. Real grace says this. In fact, I wrote it down. I want to say it clearly because I wrote it down. (laughs) You are much uglier than you think. You're much worse than you understand. But Jesus is able to do the impossible. That's real grace. Real grace is not behavioral modification. Real grace is the ability for God to teach us how to stop being stupid with our lives. To learn from our mistakes and to start Walking away from ungodliness. Look at what he says. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. How does that happen? How does that happen? I, I got, a, I got a, um, an illustration. <clears throat> Grace. See, this is, this, is, this is the blood of Jesus, okay? It's red for the blood of Jesus. And when you come to the cross, the blood of Jesus comes over you. Amen. And he wraps around you this little tool called grace. And what happens is we get saved, but we're not totally sanctified yet. Am I talking to anybody? And we are allured by the things of the world. And we start to look and we start to say, well, I got grace, so I may as well just kind of. And here's what we do. Here's what we do. We start to run towards ungodliness and look. God brings us back to the cross. And we start to look and we start to wander a little bit. And we start to, ju- and we start to jump in, and God yanks us back to the cross. And over here we start to say, ooh, fire. <laughs> I like fire. The Bible talks about adultery being like a fire that a man heaps into his lap. And so we start to dabble with the fire and we're just about to fall off and grace yanks us back. Here's what happens when you're truly grounded in the grace of God. You get whiplash. <laughs> because you just, oh, and oh. Anybody, anybody have some whiplash scars in their lives? Come on, somebody. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. You thought that you could get away from the grace of God, but over and over and over again, God kept yanking you back to his cross to remind you, you can't do it without me, can you? That's the power of God's grace. I'm preaching a whole heck of a lot better than you're you're responding. I'm just letting you know. (laughs) Amen. Somebody's got to get excited about the grace of God in this place. You say, Pastor, I don't understand. I don't think that's really how it works. I was raised that you really just have to keep trying harder and that you can get to a point where God just says, enough is enough and cuts you off. But here's what the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians verse 3 of chapter 3. It says, the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. He says, he shall establish you and he shall keep you from evil. And if you're truly rooted, if you're truly rooted in the grace of God, you have an assurance that God Almighty has his hand on you and he will not let you go. That's the grace of God. 
And so this is what it means for us, ladies and gentlemen. When somebody falls from grace, we need to pick them up with grace. Amen. How many remember Ted Haggard from 2006? Ted Haggard, the president of the National Evangelical Association, a pastor of 20,000 people in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and it was found out that he was having homosexual sex and he was smoking methamphetamine and he fell from grace. And you know what happened? A guy was pastoring in the area. I was reading his blog in the very town that Ted Haggard is from, another pastor in another church. And he was having lunch with his agnostic friend, his agnostic friend, unbeliever. And uh, while they were having lunch, on the TV comes news about Ted Haggard. This was, this was af long after the scandal, but he was on the TV again. And the agnostic friend says to the pastor, who I'm reading the blog post, he, says, he said to me, you see that right there on the screen? That's why I don't believe like you. And the guy, the pastor says, no, wait a second. We're not all like that. We're not all like that. You can't just lump us all into that one little. He says, no, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. He says, of course I know you're not all like that. He says, my biggest problem with Christianity is that when one of your big people falls, the rest of you kick him while he's down. Why is it that we do that? Because we lose sight of grace. Grace should be the strongest weapon in every single church that preaches Jesus Christ as Lord. So you blew it this week. We all have. So you did what you didn't think you were capable of. Yeah, we all have done that, every single one of us. But just thinking that you just got to get a little bit better and try a little bit harder and do a little bit more earnest prayer this week is not going to prove successful. You need to come to reality of knowing just how big and wide and deep and high is the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for you. And when, you, when, when that happens, when that happens, something changes. You know, when a pastor falls, I want to ask you a question. When a pastor falls, what do you think? What do you think the devil is saying to him at that moment? I'll tell you what he's saying. He's saying, you filthy sinner. How dare you pastor people? How dare you call yourself a Christian? You're a fraud, and everybody knows it, and you may as well just end it. That's what the devil says. You know what the saddest thing is? Is that in most churches, the people in the pew are echoing the voice of Satan rather than the grace of Jesus. Colossians chapter four, verse six says, let your speech always, always be with grace. I don't know about you, but I don't wanna give the devil any help. I think he's doing a bang up job already. I wanna starve him out of condemning and destroying people's lives. And I want to be a person that when I see somebody fall, I am the voice of Jesus to that person. Is anybody with me? Amen. Number three and finally. Number three and finally. We need to look forward in grace. We, know, we need to look forward. Now, grace reforms our past. Grace, I'm sorry, grace, I'm sorry. grace redeems our past. Grace reforms our present. And grace rewards our future. Redeems our past, reforms our present, and rewards our future. You ever think about this? That God 
doesn't just save you from hell. He gives you heaven. He doesn't just say, okay, okay. I won't hold your sins against you anymore. But that's it. He has the audacity to reward us. <laughs> that's what's so amazing about our God. And Jesus said this in Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. He said, I am coming soon. And here's what he said, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. That not only do we have the opportunity to walk away from where we were in the devil's stronghold in our lives by God's grace, but we also have the opportunity to learn from our mistakes and be reformed by God's grace. And we also, on top, we have the ability to work in the kingdom of God, to serve, to give, to love people, to honor people, to, to, to minister to people. And then God gives us rewards for that. I mean, it's like we didn't even deserve the opportunity, but, but now you're gonna reward us for the, the thing that we didn't have? A chance to do, that's like, that's like somebody finding a bum on the street in Boston, Massachusetts and saying, I will clean up your act, I will pay for your school and your education, and then when you're all done working, I will provide for your retirement. Is, is, this, is this clicking with us about God's amazing, unfathomable, rich grace that saved a wretch like us. And what's that last line in that wonderful hymn? Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. That's reforming our present. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. <laughs> 